Welcome to The Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. The difficult visions of Daniel continue in Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of Yahweh to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, and pleased for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to Yahweh my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Yahweh, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of Yahweh our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us, because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of Yahweh our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore Yahweh has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for Yahweh our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned and have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for our iniquities, of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before Yahweh my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, 
the word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wings of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is the word of the Lord. Like I said, another vision of Daniel, and a difficult one at that, but we'll come to that in a little bit here. So first, first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. So this is Darius the Mede again, which could again also be read as Cyrus. So 539 BC, Ahasuerus appears to be a Persian title meaning mighty man. And there are perhaps three different Ahasuerus's mentioned in scripture. Maybe it's just two. Um, so you've got this one. Uh, the father of Darius, the father of Cyrus, then you would have the one that is coming yet. So Darius the first, who is going to be a descendant of Cyrus' brother. So Cyrus's brother will, I think it's his great-grandson. Uh, it's hard to keep track of the, the lines of kings. Darius is a distant relative, a in a sense, like a great-nephew, great-great-nephew to Cyrus. So Darius I, or Darius the Great. His son, Darius's son, is going to be Xerxes. And that's the book of Esther. The one whom Esther marries as queen. So she becomes queen over Persia. And that's something to consider, to bear in mind here. But back to our text. So Daniel reads from books. Book means scroll at the time. They don't have books like you think of and I think of when we think of a book, um, but rather a something that has been written down on parchment and has been rolled up, papyrus perhaps. He, he says he's determined the number of years before Jerusalem is restored, 70 years. And that is what the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. If Babylon destroyed Jerusalem in 587 and the temple, counting out 70 years from there brings you to 517, roughly, right, depending on when, when in the years you're talking about. So Cyrus defeats Babylon, sorry, Babylon defeats Jerusalem in 587. Cyrus defeats Babylon in 539, and he sets the Jews free. He allows them to return home in a decree that he makes in 538. So that would only be 49 years, not quite the 70 years. They don't go right away. They're a little sluggish in that. But even after going, they don't do a good job at rebuilding the temple. It takes some time. And under Zerubbabel, they will eventually get that thing finished. 
and that's close to 517, so that's 70 year mark. Um, typically, you see it dated 516 or 515 um, when the temple itself is consecrated, when it's dedicated to the Lord again. So God's, God's absence, the throne of God over his people, his absence from being present in their midst right there in Jerusalem in that holy place, that's the 70 years that you typically are looking at here with the reference in Jeremiah. So in, in the midst of this, knowing that he's in the midst of this, right? Um, he's got 20 years roughly to go. Daniel prays. He prays to the Lord uh, a prayer that is, I mean, it's reflective of most of their history as he mourns over how they have done wrong, how they've acted wickedly, how they haven't kept his commandments, how they followed after, you know, whatever they wanted to follow after. They were shameful. And that would speak again of, Really, that speaks of any of us, right? As we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3. Some things we can pick out of this prayer. Um, it begins with prayer for mercy. He fasts, and he gets down, dresses in sackcloth, sits in ashes. You can talk to your kids about this one. Have you ever fasted before? I don't know if there's particular medical advice about children and fasting, but I know you're starting to hear more and more in the medical community that there's actually benefit to fasting for for people to do that, um, intermittent fasting at least. Um, but biblically, fasting is for the purpose that our prayers would be heard. Isaiah 58.4 speaks that in the negative, uh, but very clearly tells us what the purpose of fasting is. Fasting would be good for us to do today as God's people not as a thing to earn and achieve righteousness before God, but in order that we might learn to trust in the Lord above all things. That he is the one that provides our daily bread. He is the one who hears our prayers and answers them. And in the times of persecution, if we have such a a disciplined body, that would be of benefit to us as well. So God spoke through his prophets to his people, to the kings, princes, fathers, and all of them, and they did not listen. That was in verse 6. As you're reading through this, another thing you might ask the kids, what should we do when we sin? Well, this is where we, like Daniel in verse 9, we believe that God is merciful and that God forgives. And so we plea for mercy. We confess our sins. We, we speak to God saying, I have done this against you. I have done this. I have harmed my neighbor in this way. Um, and we confess those sins. And God forgives us and we rejoice at that forgiveness. If that sin is particularly troubling you, um, confession and absolution comes into play here where you can go to your pastor and hear that, that beautiful word of forgiveness spoken directly over you. So you know God's word is for you. Um, Sometimes we have that struggle when we're in a group of people. We think, well, you know, could God really forgive me for this? The answer to that is yes. But you can hear your pastor speak that word directly to you. It's the benefit of private confession and absolution. So Israel has transgressed your law. The curse and the oath written in the law of Moses are upon us. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 14 through 45. God would destroy them. I mean, he would bring this curse upon them before their unfaithfulness. And God has confirmed this. He's brought great calamity upon them. 
the Lord does that. Right? We see evil things happen and we don't want to attribute them to God, but the Lord is still in control. And so this this thing that has befallen Israel, we would see that as evil. Well, God's temple was torn down. His people were taken away. They're being enslaved, mistreated. But, but this is actually from the Lord's own hand. He has caused this as a judgment upon them. So the Lord's judgment is good. And that's hard for us to remember, too, when we're actually living in the midst of the Lord's judgment, which... In the midst of a global pandemic, we might be living in the midst of God's judgment. It's hard to say that we're not living in the midst of God's judgment. So if that's the case, as he sees here, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of our God, Yahweh. We have not turned from our iniquities and gained insight by your truth. I just was listening to a sermon today uh, myself about a, a preacher saying that, you know, we, we have not done this. Right? You would expect in the midst of a global pandemic that people would flock to the churches, that in the world of darkness in which we live, where there is so much death and so much fear, people would be running and filling the pews. And it's been the opposite. In most places, the pews sit empty. We are not repenting. We are doubling down on fear and other things that turn us away from the Lord rather than towards him. So do we see this today, uh, these calamities? Yeah, we see it in the world. We see them in the church or the local community. We see them in in our own family. We see how the Lord brings judgment and sometimes people repent, other times they don't. You might be able to talk about specific examples of that that you have seen in your own family or community in the past. So God has kept the calamity going. He is righteous in all the works that he has done. So even in his judgment, even this, the Lord is good. It is us who aren't. That's something that Daniel will highlight through this prayer too. So we've become a byword. So spoken of like the the people of Israel are mentioned and it's like a curse. Almost like you and I would think of the word Sodom. When we hear that word, we think negatively immediately about that people and that city. And that's how it is for Israel. Lord, turn your anger and your wrath away. Listen to our plea. Listen to the prayer of your servant. For your sake, O Lord. Not Not for Daniel's sake, for God's sake. Because he is the one who has done all this for this people. He is the one who has redeemed them numerous times. Who has put in the effort. Who has sent the prophets. Lord, you have made your name known among the nations. May you continue to do so. Do not let your name be blotted out from the earth. Keep a salvific promise here. Point people to the Messiah, which is coming, right? And Gabriel's response here shortly. So beautiful uh, words in verse 18. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. And then into 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God. I'm going to pause there. I mean, the verse continues, but verses 18 and 19, as I just spoke them, would make a beautiful word of confession for us. 
That, that is a prayer that you can pray for the Lord to forgive you of your sin. That we could pray together as a family or as a congregation. So Gabriel answers, um, while Daniel is pleading for the holy hill of my God is a reference to Jerusalem, Gabriel appears. So Gabriel only showing up in Daniel 8, Daniel 9, and Luke 1. But yet we know his name so very well in the church. He appears at the time of the evening sacrifice, so maybe roughly sunset. And he shares a vision with Daniel because Daniel is loved by God. As are you, by the way, right? So greatly that Jesus died for us. This vision is of 70 weeks. And this is the tough part. If you have a the tough part of the chapter. If you have a Lutheran study Bible, page 1417 is going to lay out for you two different interpretations of this vision. And I think they're both helpful to consider. So there's the traditional interpretation of it as being messianic. And the word Messiah actually shows up right there in verse 25. Anointed one in Hebrew is Messiah, so Mashiach. And, and that's in the text right there. A Mashiach, a prince which will be seven weeks. So both both of the interpretations on page 1417 are going to look at this from beginning the seven weeks at Cyrus' decree. So the, the traditional messianic view has the seven weeks being the time from Cyrus' decree to Nehemiah, where the city is, of Jerusalem is being rebuilt, the walls finally finished. Those are the seven weeks. The 62 weeks, which are longer than seven, biblical prophecy numbers, aren't always necessarily specific, often aren't, but seven is less than 62. So 62 is the, the bigger chunk of time. 62 weeks is described in this interpretation as going from Nehemiah and 445 until the birth of Jesus. Eh, what would that be? Roughly 4 BC, give or take a year or two there. And then the life of Jesus and onward from there is then the the final week of the 70 weeks uh, with Jesus' crucifixion being in there and the temple destruction by Rome in 70 AD as the actual middle point because we have the half week where there aren't any sacrifices and that would reflect the idea the temple has been torn down. There's nowhere for the Jewish people to sacrifice. So that's been taken away. And then this view would say that it ends that 70th week, that final week, that half week, ends in 135 when the city of Jerusalem itself is then conquered um, at that time. So that's one view. The other view is typological. So typology is the, the idea that you've got um, something smaller that is fulfilled more greatly. So type, anti-type. Um, king David was a great king. He's the type. Jesus is the anti-type because he's the greater king, the fuller king that would later come in, Dan, in David's place. So this, this typological interpretation with the Messiah sees those seven weeks as being the time from Cyrus' decree in 538 until the time of Jesus' incarnation and his birth, his death, and his resurrection in that era of, you know, again, 4 BC-ish into the maybe AD 29 range, something like that. Then from that, 62 weeks in the, the typological view would go from Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to be the time of the church and that there is then a coming one week in which the Antichrist is destroying 
the church, destroying the gospel, destroying worship until Christ returns. Which, if you're taking that view, are we in it now? Hard to say. Helpful just to kind of break those down, to take a look at those. Again, it's really nice to be able to see them if you have one of those Lutheran study Bibles. But, I mean, you see some of these details, right? God is going to anoint a most holy place, a new temple. He's going to do it with this anointed one, this this prince. So you can easily see that, that picture of Jesus there. Because the Old Testament uses both of those words to refer to Jesus elsewhere. But a king would be anointed. So could this be, um, again, the idea that Jerusalem will be rebuilt? Certainly. Um, that a priest would do that. Think of Ezra, the priest and the scribe that is sent. Or Nehemiah as the governor. Or Zerubbabel, um, the one who rebuilds the temple. You could see any of those names kind of fitting in that picture. And then you've got the time where it's been built with squares and moats of the wall again. Uh, a troubled time, a difficult time as they're under Greek rule, as they're under the, uh, the time of Maccabees. There's just things going wrong until Christ comes and that brings you that final week. In this way, maybe the people of the prince who is to come, which is uh, who are going to destroy the sanctuary, be a reference to the Romans. So the people of the prince, the desolator, the abominable one from later in the the section, he is the one who is to come, could be interesting. So it could be a both and where you somehow combine those views because prophecy sometimes does that, where you have a smaller thing with a greater fulfillment. So maybe this is a picture of the time um, where we're looking forward to Christ coming. Uh, and then as that first view ends with the destruction of the temple, really, then the second view comes in where we are living in that time now as we wait for the Antichrist to be finally defeated on the last day when Christ returns. And so the church lives in that trouble, that time of turmoil, even now. Hard to say for certain, these sorts of prophecies, especially this one, because we don't have Gabriel interpreting it for us like the other visions in the book have been so far. But again, take comfort. Your God reigns. He has rescued you through the blood of your Savior, Jesus Christ. And you will live on with him forevermore, and the kingdom is his. And because it is his, and you are his, the kingdom is also yours. Amen.